been going through Second Timothy. We're uh, we're on our way through Second Timothy as a as a church, and then this week, so we're continuing that journey. And, and there's there's a lot of content in this passage this morning. And so as I was reading it and studying it this week, I was man, I was really overcome by the love of God. As we go through elements of this passage this morning, I pray that you too would be touched by how much God has done for us, how much he cares for us, how faithful he is to us, even though we have done nothing to earn any of it. May the God who gives good gifts to his people bless you through his word this morning. Let's, uh, let's read the word. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, we read. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. On November 5th, uh, 1605, Guy Fawkes was arrested as part of a conspiracy to overthrow the English government by blowing up Parliament and killing the king. He was found guarding barrels of gunpowder in the cellars beneath the building, and the conspiracy became known as the Gunpowder Plot. That night, Londoners were encouraged to to celebrate the king's escape from assassination, and an act of parliament designated each 5th of November as a holiday, a day of thanksgiving for the joyful day of deliverance, and remained in force until 1859. Around that time, a poem was written to help people remember the attempt on their king. And the first verse goes like this. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I can think of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Remember. Do not forget. Remember. Memory is is what we call the brain encoding and and storing and retrieving information. Memory is vital to experiences. It is the retention of information over time for the purpose of influencing future action. 
So we remember things so that they might inform our future decisions. When we touch something that is hot and we are burned, our our memory holds on to that, right? So that we'll avoid touching something hot again. So we can avoid the pain, the discomfort. That's that's not something I want to do. But memory is not a perfect processor. Our, Our brains, we don't store memories perfectly. Even the memories themselves can become distorted by our own agendas, our own personal preferences. How many times have we heard, well, that's, that's not how I remember it, right? I mean, especially at family gatherings, that seems to be when that happens the most. Like, I'll get together with my siblings, and I'll be like, remember this experience when all of you, like, ganged up on me? And my sisters will be like, that's not how we remember it, right? Like, that's a thing. We have, our memories just, they, they code differently for each one of us. And so we help our memories by putting them into something solid. We, we try to form something solid to help us remember. We take pictures. We took a bunch of pictures today. I saw those phones out, right? What, what everyone's standing up here looking all nice. Like that's something we do to help remember things that are going on. My family was just blessed with the ability to take a trip to Disney World. And we took a bunch of pictures to help us remember that trip. Maybe, maybe we make videos, right? Or, or sometimes we'll... We'll put down memory in a song or a journal entry or even a poem like our Londoners back in the 1800s. God being so completely aware that our memories decay, that we're not perfect, that we can't retain everything, and that we're prone to forgetfulness, instructed his people to do the same types of things in the Old Testament. That they might remember his wondrous acts on their behalf. Now obviously they were not walking around with with digital phones and that kind of stuff, right? Like they didn't have the ability to maintain and hold memories in that way at that point in time. So he came up with, with different ways to try and help them remember. In fact, it's very apparent from the Old Testament that remembering the great acts of God is essential to the spiritual well-being of God's children. Remembering the great acts of God is essential to the spiritual well-being of God's children. God wants his people to remember that he loves them. That he has acted and continues to act on their behalf. We see this all over the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament. We, We see this in the Passover. The night before God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, he instituted the Passover rite as a perpetual ceremony in Israel, and it's still observed to this day. A means of remembering God's deliverance, a meal, a time of celebration that is shared together, that is set aside consistently, yearly, to remember what God did for his people. We see this in the crossing of the Jordan River. The the Israelites needed to get across the Jordan, this this violent river, to be able to get from the, the desert, the the place they were lost in in exile for a long time, to get into the promised land, the one last thing in their way is the Jordan River. They need to cross this to get to the land that they had been promised by God, but but they were unable to get the Ark of the Covenant across. So they had certain instructions, supposed to have a certain amount of guys carrying this Ark in a particular way, and they don't float, the Ark doesn't float. How are they going to get it across this, this violent river? And so... God dries it up. He dries it up just long enough for the ark to be carried so that they, they actually bring the ark into the middle of, of the river and it's dry while the ark is there. And then they have everybody go by and then the priests take the ark out and then the river comes back. 
And so then what they do is they have the priests of Israel. They take 12 stones and they pile them up in Gilgal in the promised land. And these stones served as a reminder to the Israelites that they were a reminder that they did not cross the Jordan River. They did not enter the promised land of their own ability, but instead by a work of God. And realizing this, remembering this, seeing this rock pile that was to stand as a testament to the memory of what God has done, they were to conduct their life accordingly. Why, why all this emphasis on remembering? Why the rites and, and the ceremonies? Why the, the pile of stones, the physical representation of God's work on behalf of his people? Because God's children have always tended to forget the wonderful things that he has done. God's children have tended to forget the wonderful things that he has done. Despite all the good things that God did for his people, despite how he moved in mighty ways on their behalf, manna from heaven, a pillar of cloud to follow by day, a pillar of night, to, uh, fire to follow by night, freeing them over and over again from those who seek to oppress them. And how do the children of God respond? Forgetfulness. Sometimes willful, intentional forgetfulness. They get distracted by the world around them. The gods of the people around them that just, that just seem a bit more tangible than a god that you can't see or make idols of. And in their distraction, they, they turn away. They fall away. They, they worship these other gods. We see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. We see how God's people, despite how clearly he has been working for them on their behalf, and how many systems he has instituted so that they would remember. How many piles of rocks or how many rites so they would remember. We see how God's people forget his faithfulness. They forget his power and his love. We see how God's children forget. It can be tempting at times to try and leave like the Old Testament in the Old Testament, right? Like that happened a long time ago. Like that's where it belongs way out there in the Old Testament. But I think we do that simply because the reflection is, is, is a bit too accurate. And since the reflection, this, this mirror of the Old Testament, the reflection is so accurate, it begs the question, do we mirror the people of Israel in their forgetfulness? Do we mirror the people of Israel in their forgetfulness? When times are hard, when, when life gets a bit too real, when, when we're angered by our circumstances, do we also forget the wonderful things that God has done for us? This past, this, this past six months, there we go, got it out. I went through like the hardest experience of my life to date. My wife, Karen, was due to give birth to our sixth child, a baby girl. This May 23rd. In late November, we found out that our little Ava was diagnosed with trisomy 18, which is a genetic mutation that just happens. You don't, you don't do anything. There isn't like, she didn't drink too much coffee or, or something while she was pregnant. It's just, it happens at conception, and there's nothing you can do about it. But it's very terminal. And there was a grieving process that took place right after the diagnosis, and then on, on January 10th of this year, 
Karen gave birth to our little stillborn baby girl at 21 weeks old. Now, there were occasions in January when I thought, or before January, there were occasions before January where I thought that I had wrestled with God. Times when I felt that God was calling me to go somewhere to do something that I wasn't really all that sure I I wanted to do. Like spending a gap year in Arizona on a mission team that ended poorly. Or dealing with being hurt and burned out in ministry. Or taking a call to a church on the opposite side of the country from where my family, where my security blanket is. But at no time in my life to this point have I wrestled with God like I did over Ava. Because I wasn't just wrestling with what God wanted me to do or what he had allowed to happen. I was wrestling with who he is. Who he tells me he is in scripture, who I have always believed him to be. I was wrestling with the concept of God's goodness. I was wrestling with the idea that that God is love. I was wrestling with the concept of a God who professes that he is good and that he loves me and that he is all-powerful and that a God who professes all these things would allow my sweet little baby to be born with a condition, to be conceived with a condition that would not allow me to even meet her. Have you ever struggled? Have you wrestled with God? In my struggling, I knew where I would end up. I knew where the struggle would bring me. I knew that God's word is true and that the the world is full of situations like mine and, and many that are way worse than mine. And I had enough experiences in life where I could look back and I could see God's hand of provision and know that he had not taken that hand from me. And yet in spite of all this knowledge, man, I still wrestled. And it was a wrestling I felt I had to do in private. I had to protect Karen and the kids from my feelings towards God. I had to protect my friends and my church. From my feelings towards God. So it was largely a wrestling match waged in private, in my alone time, in the depths of the darkness of my thoughts. Can any of you relate? Knowing, knowing the right, knowing the truth, but not always being able to stick to the path. Being swayed by emotion and knowledge, not, not permanently, but enough Enough to feel the guilt. Enough to feel the shame in my doubt, in my frustration, in my anger. Can any of you relate to that? I was reminded of the story of Jesus healing the boy with an unclean spirit in Mark 9. A father, a father brings his son, a concerned father brings his son to Jesus and, and the boy's possessed and, and he has been from childhood and the, and the demon takes over and causes the boy to go into seizures and, and tries to harm him by throwing him into fire just so that he'll be burned or trying to throw him into water so that he'll drown. 
And this father brings this afflicted son to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, please help us. And how does Jesus respond? If you can, he says, if you can, he immediately points out the doubt in the father's question. If I can, all things are possible for the one who believes, he says. And immediately, and I, I love this. This is, this is something that has been so instrumental for me in my life. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. The cry of the father hits me right in my soul. God, I'm struggling in my heart. You know, I know you have the ability to heal. I know you have the ability to save. I know you have the ability to forgive. I know that you are who you say you are. I know that you are love. I know that you are with me every step of this seemingly impossible journey. I know all of that. I have that knowledge in my head and I believe it. But Lord, I am struggling right now. Please, God, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. In this midst of this wrestling match that I was engaged in with God, I received a message that asked me if I would speak at our regional convention, which is a time when all the churches in the area, we get together at a camp in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I was told that the theme of the convention was the sufficiency of Christ. And the board was wondering if I would be willing to preach on 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13, with a suggested title. The theme being, Christ is faithful. Christ is faithful. He didn't feel very faithful to me at that particular moment. He felt unkind and unfair. But as I read the text, the last line brought tears to my eyes. Verse 13, if we are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he is faithful. If we are faithless, that line cut me like a knife, for I knew that in my anger and frustration, in my guilt and my shame, I was the one being faithless. Nor in Scripture are we promised a life free from pain, free from struggle. And we see that even our text this morning when, when Paul exhorts Timothy and the rest of us in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But though I know the reality that suffering is a part of life, that doesn't mean I wanted to go through it. And that doesn't mean I knew exactly how I'd react when I encountered it. If we are faithless, Have any of you ever been faithless? Have you ever felt that God couldn't keep his promises to you? Have you ever felt that he lied to you about life and about what this is all supposed to look like? Have you ever felt that you didn't need God, that you didn't need him in a particular area of life, or that you didn't want him in a particular area of life because you, know, and you can handle it on your own? Or because you didn't want him to know your shame? Have you ever doubted anything that God has said about himself? Have you ever said that you could do better than he is? How many times have I thought that? 
Have you ever had the storm of life raging around you and it seems like the waves are going to overturn the boat and you're going to drown? And like the disciples, you look around and you see Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat. And instead of just trusting in the safety of his presence in your fear, you doubt his ability. And so you wake him up and you wonder, why isn't he panicking with you? Or maybe like Peter, you've been in a situation where it seemed like it was, it'd be a bad thing to be associated with Jesus. The pressures are too high. The timing just doesn't really seem right. Better to deny your relationship than to face the judgment, scorn, ridicule, and possible abuse that is associated with belief in Jesus Christ. And then the rooster crows. And our guilt and our shame are there to keep us company. Have any of us responded this way to Jesus? Have any of you ever been faithless like I have? We all have our moments. We all have our times in life. Some stretch farther than others, but we all have our moments. We all have our moments of failure. And when we encounter those moments, when the shame and the guilt and the fear begin to rise in your gut, remember that word again, right? Remember this passage. Remember the promise. Remember that the God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt has delivered you. Remember that God who enabled his people to cross into the promised land has brought you into the promised land of his kingdom, his family. And remember, please remember that when you are faithless, God is faithful. It's who he is. He cannot deny himself, as our passage reminds us this morning. So his faithfulness to us is part of of who he is. He cannot deny it. He cannot refuse it. It's part of himself. It's part of his essence. He will never ghost you. He cannot quit you. It's not in him to do it. How amazing is that? His faithfulness is not dependent on your actions. It's not dependent on you at all. We don't earn it. It's not dependent on performance or faithfulness. His faithfulness to us is just part of who he is. Samuel Rutherford has this poem and it's, it's wonderful. Or this, this, this phrase he says. He says, often and often... I have in my folly torn up God's, or my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be his name. He keeps it safe in heaven. And he stands by it always. What a beautiful picture. Though time and time again we fail to fulfill the covenant with God. Though time and time again we are not faithful in our faithfulness. Destroy our copy of God's covenant. He is guarding the master copy always. Our failings and sin, our lapses in faithfulness do not cancel the covenant. Through him and his faithfulness, the covenant has been fulfilled. He is faithful and he has forgiven you. He is faithful and he is not and will not ever stop loving you. You know, I don't know where you're at in your walk of faith. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for as long as you can remember. Maybe you're struggling through that through what walking with the Lord looks and feels like, and maybe you're still trying to figure out who this whole Lord thing is and if you want anything to do with him. No matter where you are, 
on that walk. God does not move or change. He is faithful and he loves you and he sent his son to die for you. And then Jesus, taking all of our sin and our shame, died. And then he rose again from the dead three days later. Conquering sin and death and making it possible to have relationship with God. For when we believe in Jesus, when we are baptized into this faith, the Bible tells us that we have put on Jesus. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see the wretched sin that has scarred and stained our lives. But instead, he sees his son. Christ went through all of this, not because of what we have done. For time and time again, we have proven our faithlessness. He did it all because he promised us he would. Because he loves us, because it was given to him to do, and because he does not disappoint. Christ is truly faithful. Rest in that. Rest in the truth that God loves you and that he cares for you. Rest in the reality that when we are faithless, he is faithful. He's faithful, church. He does not shift, he does not sway, he does not fumble. He is faithful and he will keep his promises and he will forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Amen.